Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Thrive Podcast. We are the Young Adult Ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Wednesdays at 730 in our Family Life Center. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love for you to post it to your Instagram story and tag us at NBC Thrive on Instagram. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. You guys can take a seat. So we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn there. Um, you might say, well, we skipped 5 and 6. Yeah, that's intentional. Um, we actually had quoted from most of 5 and 6 as we were going through it. So we are now going to start in uh, chapter 7. And if you open chapter 7, you'll notice that f- until this point, it's looked just like normal paragraphs. Chapter 7, it starts looking real spaced out. That's the kind of the translator's way of letting you know that these are going to be Proverbs. So what we're going to look at, it's not going to be too cohesive. It's just going to be Proverbs, kind of what Solomon has seen as he's going through his study for wisdom. So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we are going to be in verses 1 through 8. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity." Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So this section probably seems pretty freako. You're like, okay, happy I came to church today. It's better to cry than to be happy and be sad and go to funerals and all that crap. You know, what's going on? Um, Well, what Solomon means by that is um, we will all die. I listened today. Apparently there are 250,000 people who die every day. That's a big number. I didn't realize that. But I actually read something really arbitrary. It's 250,000 people a day die. And so eventually there will be a day where it's our last day on earth. There will be a day where we're here and we just think we're going to wake up and live life like normal and we're not going to. I mean, you're like, well, that's depressing. That won't be me. Well, probably actually it might be you. Um, and, but it's just so ailing. You know, we're young, we're healthy, we're fit, we're spry, whatever. It's not going to be me. Solomon says, yeah, it is going to be you. And if that's going to be you, what's your life going to be like? What is the life that you're leaving to people? He says here, this is the end of all mankind, right? That's the end of everybody. And the living, which is us right now, the living will lay it to heart. We're going to put this in our heart. We're going to take it to heart and think, okay, there will be a day when it's my last day on earth. Okay, there will be a day when I'm not up in Adam anymore. What is the type of world I want to leave for my family, for my grandchildren? What is the type of world that I want to leave? Um, I was talking to some people today. There's a John Piper sermon where John Piper goes up and um, is talking to Passion, and he says, um, we had a couple missionaries at our church. He said, and they were nurses, and they finally, um, they left, and they went to like Sudan or some African country, and they were, they were helping people there, and they were being nurses there. Then one day, the brakes give out in the car, and boom, they go right over the cliff. He says, and John Piper asked his congregation, he says, is this a tragedy? Is this a tragedy? Is this something that people look at and they say, that's tragic? He says, I want to read you something else. And he pulls out a Reader's Digest. And it says, uh, 
Tips to an Early Retirement. And it talks about this couple who found a way to maximize their 401k deductions and their contributions and found a way to put the money in the right CDs and the right retirement accounts. And they were able to retire early and go to Florida. And John Piper says, and they were out on the beach and they were loved to collect seashells. And John Piper said, which one is a tragedy? You're going to go to heaven. You're going to say, look, God, my shell collection. Said that real loud. And you're like, Oh my gosh, right? And that's the life, that's the future we're all pining for, right? That's the world we want. We want a world where we're just safe and we're secure and we have a good job and we have good friends and we have a good family, we have a good life, we have a good car, and we get old hopefully and we die in our sleep. And that's the, that's the viewpoint we have in our, in our mind of that's what we want, that's what we're trying to get, get out of life. Solomon says, look, you're going to die. And if that's the case, you want your life to be meaningful, you, may, you don't want your life to be this comfortable thing where you're forgotten. You want your life to be meaningful. And if we're going to die and if our lives are going to ha- have an end, what type of world do you want to leave for the people who come after you? Um, is it a world where you worried and worried and worried to get a nice job and a nice car and a nice house and you couldn't care less about what happens to other people? Or is it a world where you are carrying the death of Christ around in your body so that others might live through Christ and through his sacrifice, but because of the things that you did. Which one is a tragedy? Which one would make your life worthless? Is it doing something that's giving your all to God, giving your life to God, or is it doing something that is completely arbitrary that's designed for your own comfort? And so when Solomon talks about this death stuff here, it's easy to get real nihilistic and like, oh, I don't have a point. That's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to you to go to a funeral and like be a funeral hopper. You've heard of a wedding crasher, now presenting funeral crasher. No, that's not what Solomon's saying. What he is saying, though, is that if you're wise, you're going to realize that this is going to be me lying in this cold box done up. What do I want people to go there and say about me? What is the world I want to leave? So we're going to end that. But that's going to lead us to that first point here. Embracing those hard realities will refine our focus. When we embrace the hard reality, and that's true for a lot of things, but of course we're going to make it for death. But when we embrace the hard realities of our lives, it's going to redefine and define our focus. We're going to realize that there's more to life here than just me being comfortable, than me being happy. There's more to life. Embracing those hard realities are going to refine our focus. For the second point, we're going to be in verses 8 through 14. Is this microphone, like, popping? No? Okay, good, never mind. Okay, 8 through 14. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So these are all Proverbs, and it's kind of that, like, they're not entirely cohesive. You're like, there's like 10 things he's talking about, right? We already talked about that. Um, But clearly we're seeing in verses 9 through 10 that there's an advantage to foresight, right? There's an advantage to looking at life and kind of having this idea of, you know, don't be angry, you know, look, you know, anger lodges in the heart of fools, things like that. Um, And like we're going to see in in verses 21 through 23, 
Well, I think the point that we can kind of glean from here is for us to expand our reality. And that kind of sounds real meta. You're like, wow, expand your reality, hype, man. And I don't mean like in some stupid way. What I mean here, and I, actually I'm just going to start reading, reading this here. Um, it's easy when you're wronged to lose it, right? It's easy when somebody does something to hurt you or that's mean or that's petty for you just to completely lose it. You've all heard something like this. Um, I have never been treated by someone like I was by that person. Never, right? You've heard that. And you've heard people who said, you know, it's never been as bad as it is now. It's never been this bad. You know, Solomon says, you know, why were the former days better than these? Gosh, when I was a kid, you know, you've heard people say that, right? But what do all those things have in common? You, right? It's as bad as it's ever been for you. It's as bad. You, you've never been treated that badly, right? You have never been treated that badly. Solomon's going to say here, expand a reality. He says in verses in the same chapter, 22 through 23, 21 through 22, I'm sorry. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. <laughs> Some of you need to like inscribe this on your body. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Solomon says, if you're eavesdropping and you're looking at other people and saying, oh, what are they doing? What do they think about me? You might not like what you hear. Solomon says, you're going to be, you know, trying to find out what people think. You might not be happy. Solomon says, expand your reality. Listen, you know that you are that person. You talk badly about people too. So don't be all, you know, hurt. I was going to say this. Don't, don't be all hurt when something happens that you're like, oh gosh, I can't believe they think that way about me. It's almost like you think that way about other people too. And you think that way. And the thing is, if you go through life and your reality is yourself, your mode of experience is yourself, and you constantly go through life thinking, it's never been this bad. Gosh, when I was a kid, kids were like this, and now kids are like this. Gosh, when I'm an adult, I thought that this is, and that person was supposed to be my friend, and they're not my friend anymore, and I've never been backstabbed like that. I understand. It's hard. It sucks. Life's hard. But if we expand our reality, we realize just because it's the worst it's ever been to us doesn't mean it's the worst it's ever been. And what does that do for us, right? Christian's up here talking about self. What does that do for us? Well, by expanding our reality, it helps us look at other people subjectively, and it looks, helps us look at ourselves objectively. Easy, most of the time, we look at people and we say, they're supposed to be doing this, 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 and we take no account to what they've gone through to get there. Um, a good, you know, gosh, how do I say this? I told a guy at work once, for example, he said, I can't believe Christians are so mean. Sometimes I have Christians who come in here and they say they're part of Christians and they just rail. They're so mean. I was like, how do I like respond to this? And so I said, could you imagine what it was like if they weren't Christians? And uh, I think he found that funny, but it was like, um, we, Christianity is something that helps us where we realize that, okay, God forgave our sins. We can forgive other people's. And what that means is that when we realize that, oh, you know, it's not just my desires. It's not just my comfort. It's just not my reality. There's other people involved in this. That helps us as well that we, we can realize to treat other people in this objective way. And we can treat them in the fact that they might not be going through the greatest time. And we have leniency towards them. And so anger, as kind of Solomon's talking about here, is one of those things where it'll lodge in your heart. And what we do is we expand our, we realize that we are not the only person who's gone through this before. There are other people who are struggling. There are other people who are having a hard time. There are other people who are talking behind your back. And what you need to do is not get all angry and frustrated and defensive, but it's to realize that life is bigger than just me and what I'm going through. So that's the second point. 
to, uh, for us to expand our reality in, in that way. Thirdly, we're going to talk through here, and this, this is a hard part here, so the, the rest of this chapter is very confusing. So I'm just going to go read it here, and then we'll talk about it. Solomon says in verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and that from not and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay, so we're going to stop there. How many of you thought we would read in the Bible uh, to not be too righteous? Why should you destroy yourself, right? I mean, that's, that's some crazy stuff here. Um, and clearly there's going to be 10,000 ways to look at these next verses that we're going to talk about. The way that we're going to talk about it here is that Solomon is talking about the disadvantage of, from a humanistic, from our worldview experience, running too far ahead of the pack and running too far behind the pack, right? And the way we're going to look at it is if you are making yourself overly righteous, if you're making yourself where it's like everybody can see how good of a person you are, oh, well, they don't cuss and they don't drink and they don't even, you know, do this and they don't even do that, wow, right? If you're making yourself overly righteous so that other people can see you, right? Solomon says, why are you going to destroy yourself before? Why, what are you doing that for? And if you're going to be overly wicked, right? You're not just going to do what's wrong, but you're going to have a great time. You're going to, you know, throw it. Solomon says, the, the person who fears God comes out from both of those things. He says later in Ecclesiastes 8:12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you're like, this guy is this kind of stream of consciousness writing. What it boils down to is that it looks like people who do things that are wrong just get away with it. And there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that happens to them. They just kind of do whatever they want, and they're okay. And then I do something right, and I get nailed for it. What's the deal? Solomon says, though some sinner can do evil a hundred times and prolong their life, do evil a hundred times and nothing bad happens to them, you know, somebody can do something that's horrible for years and never get caught or never get, you know, held up to judgment. He says, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And so, uh, even though it doesn't look like that sometimes, which is what Solomon's saying here, it, it is worth it to follow God. He says that. And then in verses, there's really nothing to say there. I don't know what, what is the point. The, the final point, though, here is that friendships matter. And we're going to read that through 25 through 29. You're like, how does this relate? Well, well, we'll read it. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, and to the, know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Right? So Solomon's just trying to figure out what vanity means. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman, woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You're like, oh my gosh. And this is hard stuff here, so we're going to, 
And I was going through commentaries, and not one commentary agreed with the other on, like, what this passage meant. Well, Solomon's misogynistic, or, well, this person's saying that. No, no, no. And we're going to talk through this. It's, this is one of the most difficult passages as far as I'm concerned, though, in Ecclesiastes. I think what Solomon means here is that if you as a person are searching after a sexual type of love, something that will fulfill you, right? He says, there's something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, the sinner is taken by her, right? So if you're going through your whole life looking for love, right? If you're going, and not a love in this, like, this biblical sense, but you're looking just for somebody to make you happy. And you're just looking for someone to fulfill you and to please you and to like kind of answer all your questions, right? And if that's your number one goal through life, you're running into a prison that you're making, right? He says, her heart is traps or snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, right? You're running after something that will never fulfill you and you know it. And yet you're running after it anyway. You know that there's something that's more bitter than death is the fact that you are assuming love to be something that's going to fulfill you, this type of romantic sexual love, and you just run after it, and there's no fulfillment there. There's no fulfillment. And so you read that, and you're like, okay, well, then what is the answer? He says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And what I think he means by this, because see how he goes and then talks about man in a general sense. See this alone I found that God made man upright, right? Does that mean that, Psalm, that God only made man upright and all women are witches? No. Okay, that's not what he means. No, 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 no. He doesn't. What he means there is he's talking about man generalized, right? God made mankind upright. The Bible always refers to, never says mankind. It talks about man. God made man upright, right? As mankind, as people, God made them upright, but they seek after evil schemes, right? That's what he's talking about. Fine, we know that from Genesis. So then why is he talking about in the verse previously about man versus woman? He's not. He's talking about where as a person, you are looking for some sort of fulfillment, some sort of love, some sort of sexual desire, whatever, right? And you're, never, you're not going to find that if that's your overarching goal. You're not going to find it. But what does he say? One man among a thousand I found. He says, when I take myself out of this whole rat race, right, and Solomon had a thousand wives. Like, what's he mean? You know, he wrote Psalm Solomon. He was happy with one, right? But what he means is that when you're going and that's your mentality, you'll never find it. But when you take a step back and realize that you can have this biblical relationship with other people that isn't this romantic type of, you know, beautiful, oh, no, you hang up, no, you hang up, no, you hang up, right? When you can kind of realize that there is other relationships available to you than that, friendships matter. Not people who are there to fulfill every desire of yours and just make you feel like your heart is full of butterflies all the time, right? But somebody is going to be there to help you when you're ugly and when it's hard and when your hair is a mess and when you're frustrated. Somebody's going to help you in the hard times. Friendships matter, we don't get into friendships with others to take from them. You know, it's like friendship isn't networking. And a lot of people are like, yeah, well, they're my friends because we're in the same job and it'll be nice when I get, when I get into this job and they get into this job to just know somebody. That's not what friendship is. That's networking, right? Friendship is when you're having a hard time and you can talk to somebody else about your, you being in a hard time. When you're having a good time and you can talk to somebody else about being in a good time. Friendships matter. Opposed to that cultural viewpoint that we just use friends for us to help ourselves um, or like a stepping stone to a romantic relationship, we have friends who will help us please God instead of ourselves. Instead of having this me-centric viewpoint, how can I feel fulfilled, we start having friendships where we start trying to help others, other people reach holiness and godliness. 
And I was thinking, you know, okay, so we have this very disjointed passage in Ecclesiastes, which was not meant to be read in any sort of cohesive light. Um, how do we kind of end? How, do, how does, you know, have a good night and thrive, you know, just walk off. You're like, what the heck? And as I was thinking, there is actually a passage in the Bible that docks with all three of these in one. And I was completely like, no way. Um, <clears throat> but that's where we're going to end tonight is Mark 14, 32 through 42. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. I'll set the scene. This is Jesus, the night, it's probably the night he is betrayed, right? He's in the upper room. He has the upper room discourse where he talks to his disciples, tells them all the things that he wants them to do, whatever. The, the relationship he has with the Father, the relationship the Father has with him, the relationship he has with them, whatever. And then they sing a hymn, and where do they go? They go to Gethsemane, right? Which is this all of, you know, press. And they go there, and Jesus is there, and Jesus has a hard time. Jesus has a hard night. He's there. It's the night before he's betrayed. He is God incarnate, so he knows what's going to happen. But he's a human. He's a person, and so he feels the weight. He feels what's stressing, what's going to go on. And so we're going to start in verses 32. It says, And they, being the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And then he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. Whose eye is pretty heavy tonight? Come on, you know, I'm, I'm tired, right? But their eyes are very heavy. And again this, he said, and they did not know what to answer him. Jesus comes back. They're tired. They barely open their eyes. And they're, they've been caught again, right? Don't know what to say. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour is come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I like this passage because it reminds us of the humanity of Jesus, right? It's easy to think of Jesus as like this. People are like, Jesus is a good moral teacher. I'm like, Father, take this cup away from me. You know, this, this is the humanity of Jesus. We see Jesus as a person in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and what that means is that we come into contact with his humanity, I think, more forcefully here than any other part in the Bible. It says in another gospel that Jesus was sweating blood. Where, um, apparently it's some physiological condition where you can be so stressed that your blood vessels so dilate that you're actually like sweating blood, right? And so he is so stressed, he's so in emotional angst. And what does our savior of the world say? What does our conquering king say? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's frustrated, he's stressed, he, he's being honest before God, and that's okay, right? And so our first point was to remember the hard realities or bracing the hard truths um, helps us for the hard times later. God, he knows what his plan is. He knows what God designed or what God had him on this earth to do, right? God had him here to die for the sins of mankind. 
and, and reconcile humanity to him. He knew what he had to do. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is wrestling with this hard truth. And us, sometimes you and I, we need to wrestle with the hard truths as well. And like Solomon said at the beginning, right? We know that we are all going to die. What are we doing now? In the words of some other pastor, is what you're living for worth Jesus dying for? Because Jesus was in there and Jesus was wrestling at the end of it. He came out and said, let's do this. I'm going to do it, right? Still nervous, still afraid, but he did it. He wrestled with it. He embraced the hard truth and that prepared him for the reality of, I'm going to die today. And he was. And so he did that. All that for you is what you're living for worth him dying for, right? And secondly, we need to expand our reality, right? Are you caring for others when your life sucks? Are you just focusing on you? Or are you caring for others? There's a time, and that's actually in John's gospel, that when, the, when all the you know, band comes to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, let these other guys go. They didn't do anything wrong, right? And Jesus' entire focus is on the others. Jesus' entire focus is on others. If anyone should have focused on what he was going through then, it should have been Jesus, right? He was going through a lot. He was going to get tortured tomorrow. I think he can take some time for himself. No, no personal day. He didn't call him sick. He was still caring for others. He said, pray that you might not fall into temptation. He says, let these guys go. They didn't do anything wrong, right? These people were associated with this huge religious, I mean, reactionary, and then nothing happens to them because Jesus says, they didn't do anything. It was all me. Whatever you're accusing me of, you know, that's, it was me. They didn't do, let them go, right? He's caring for others. Jesus never took an off day. And so it's so easy to get angry. It's so easy to be frustrated. It's so easy to look and see the problems with other people. Expand your reality. You're not the only one going through stuff. And if that's the case where even Jesus in the hardest moment could expand his reality and, well, you know what I mean by that. Jesus in his hardest moment could understand that other people were going through things. We should be able to do the same. And thirdly, um, friendships matter. And here we hear the voice of a man who's hurt, whose friends abandoned him, right? Can't you just hear that in the voice of Jesus where he says, could you not stay and watch with me for one hour, right? Jesus had counted on his friends to be praying, right? He takes his disciples and then he takes his three, Peter, James, John, you know, he takes them right up. He's like, guys, pray with me. I'm going to be so stressed out right now. I'm so frustrated. I just don't know what to do. And they are there and they fall asleep. They're tired. Right? The moment that Jesus counted on them, right? Jesus had invested three years into these people, and they, bam, fall, fell asleep. Not just once, but three times, right? And so it's so easy for us. You've been hurt by friends before. Your friends abandoned you. You abandoned friends. Well, it's just different. Our times change. Life's different, whatever. It's so easy to just be like, you know, yeah, we had a good run, but you're done. You're, you're frustrating to me. You're annoying. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't like you anymore. I don't like the people you hang out with, whatever. But listen, even to Jesus in his hardest moment, his friendships were worth it. And three days after this, when this had all happened and they betrayed him, betrayed him, betrayed him, and then Simon Peter betrays him, betrays him, betrays him, and all the disciples are nowhere to be found. They don't care about the message anymore. All they're doing is fishing. When Jesus comes back to life, what is he doing? Cooking them breakfast. Why? Because the friendships matter. The friendships that he had on earth mattered. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For everything that, I've, that the Father's made known to me, I have made known to you, right? They were friends of Jesus. And they had this relationship with Jesus because friendship mattered, because others mattered to Jesus. And, and no matter how hard your life is, which can be difficult, which can be tough, I completely understand, 
right? But no matter how tough our life is, we should be able to understand that there are people who are going through the same stuff, and sometimes even worse. And we have a responsibility as Christians to help each other and to help our world. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, thank you for Ecclesiastes. It's hard. It's not encouraging sometimes. Um, but that's the way our life feels most of the time, God, where it's just kind of this meaningless, hard pain. We just don't understand kind of what we're dealing with or what we're going through and kind of how you can be good through all this. And then comes the person of Jesus who dealt with the exact same stuff, who felt abandoned by his friends, who felt betrayed, who felt like sometimes it was too much, who felt like life was getting hard. And he was honest with you before, and yet there was no deceit in his mouth. And being the perfect person, being the perfect God-man to come down, God, to um, just die on the cross for our sins, blameless, holy, and innocent, but yet to die for us. He sacrificed on the cross that a dividing wall of hostility that we had built up between us and you, God. He died for that. He died for us. And we're so thankful, God, that we have a Savior who also struggled with the same stuff that we struggle with. We just pray, God, that as we leave tonight, um, that we would just have the understanding, like, what are you calling me into, God? Life's not about me. Life's about others. What are you calling me into doing, God? And I just pray that we would all be receptive, that we would all be receptive to your spirit and understand what you're calling us into tonight. In your son's name, amen.